Blog Talk Radio. Prometheus Books. It's quite a nice 
I have quite a nice uh, hardcover edition here. I just got it from the Science Fiction Book Club, by the way. It just came in just last week. And, you know, I didn't want to do it immediately, but I got into it, and I was so fascinated by it. I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, let's let's uh, let's talk about this. Let's, uh, because this book is, uh, quite frankly, I, I you know, I read a lot of books on alchemy. And uh, alchemy is not my long suit, by the way. I I got to admit that that um, back when I was nine years old, um, I had a friend a friend of mine uh, got this very nice chemistry set, and the two of us uh, went into it like a couple of little nine-year-old math scientists, and we went into it. And, well. Uh, we mixed up chlorine gas by accident, and boy, that scared us so much that I have never, wanted, I never really wanted to mess with with mineral alchemy since then, and, and I, I get kind of traumatized. Though we fortunately nobody got seriously hurt by it, but but still, it was it scared me, and and I I just thought, well, boy, I would never want to do this again. So uh, I have pretty much confined my alchemical experiments to the plant alchemy area, but. Um, Actually, this book, this chemistry of alchemy, is primarily concerned with mineral alchemy, and that's the alchemy that uh, that I was frankly afraid of, and 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 most people should be afraid of actually, because it is the more dangerous, uh, the more dangerous branch of the art. And in fact, um, when we had our alchemy seminar um, years ago. Uh, uh, Golden Dawn Temple I belong to. Um, uh, the temple chief has since moved up to Seattle, but we had this Golden Dawn Temple, uh, and, and we in, invited Hans Nensel over from Texas uh, to do a two-day intensive weekend seminar on alchemy. And uh, Hans Nensel at that time, he was probably, I would say, the ranking alchemist in the United States, and, uh, uh, well, I think he shared that honor with Art Conkin, but he borrowed all of Art's laboratory equipment because he didn't want to take his laboratory equipment on the plane coming over. So um, we had this this two-day intensive symposium, which was really fascinating. And, and Hans Nitzel told us over and over again, he said, don't, don't get into mineral alchemy unless you really have a background in chemistry, unless you really, really do, because this is, uh, you, you can you can poison yourself, you can blow yourself up, you can set the house on fire, you can you can do all kinds of terrible things, and you just, you know, you really don't want to, but I'm going to teach you anyway. So we had the seminar. Now, I, 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 preface, I preface this show with those remarks because uh, that most of us that are, don't have a background in chemistry, most of us have heard this from various alchemists, and from and and we've heard this over and over again. Don't mess with this end of the, don't don't get into this end of the work unless you have a you know a, at least a, at least high school chemistry and preferably college chemistry under your belt. Now that that said. Uh, and also, I should mention that the books that we have available on mineral alchemy, practical books, are frankly very obscure, and they're not written for for uh, somebody who really doesn't 
doesn't really know alchemy and really know chemistry. And yet, on the other hand, this book, this chemistry of alchemy, that, that these these three these three um, intrepid chemists have written for us here is just about safe enough and just about tickle enough and just about conscientious enough and just about safe enough to where I think maybe, just maybe, we might get out some of that old alchemical equipment, dust it off and get into it. I mean, really, it's that good. And the reason why it is is that they've constructed the book in a very, very, very fascinating way. Number one, they give you a well, it's it's a it's sympathetic history, but it's also it's also a, a nuts and bolts from a scientist's point of view history of the development of alchemy, all the way from Alexandria with Zosimos, all the way up through Paracelsus and 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 on to the you know and on beyond Paracelsus. And they they've done this. They've given you the history, and they've given you the stories of the various alchemists and the anecdotes and and all of that. Um, and they've skipped over a few, but, but but primarily they've been focusing on Western mineral alchemy. The the alchemists that were trying to make gold, the alchemists that were trying to make the philosopher's stone, the alchemists that were trying to make the elixir of life. This is what they're talking about. And so they've, they've given you the history, but they've also given you the scientific decoding of the alchemical uh, mysterioso, the, uh, the alchemical mumbo jumbo, if you will, and they've broken this down to where you can understand what the alchemists are really talking about, and what they were really trying to do, and how they were trying to do it, and what they actually accomplished. And they have all through the book, uh, they have experiments that they've prepared that you can do that uh, that demonstrate uh, these techniques. And so this really, I have to say, you know, uh, all of us thought that, that old uh, Rydell's uh, Alchemist Handbook, you know, that Weiser published years ago, we all thought, well, okay, well, that's, that's going to be the, the, basic, uh, the basic alchemy handbook for this. No, this, this, this book, The Chemistry of Alchemy, should be, uh, after you read a couple of theoretical books on alchemy, this should be the one you start with. And um, so, with that in mind, let's uh, let's get into some of the some of the things they've come up with here, and give you kind of an idea of how they work this. Now, they start off basically in Alexandria in um, um, you know, about the first century, and where so much of Hermetic philosophy and everything got started. And they start off with Zosimos. Well, we all kind of agree that Zosimos was probably the first Western alchemist. And Zosimos, um, they, they explain here as how Zosimos got started was that, Zos, that Zosimos had some association with and knowledge of the, um, the metallurgic artisans, artisans, not alchemists now, the, 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 the metallurgists, the, uh, well, smiths, if you will, uh, in Alexandria. And he, he has some um, knowledge of what they were doing. And what they were doing that fascinated him was that they were making 
for gold. They were literally making brass. They were making brass and they were plating pot metal to uh, make it look like gold. And they were selling this as costume jewelry. And they weren't selling it as gold because everybody in Alexandria bought these uh, these uh, this jewelry. They they all knew it was it was not real gold. It was it was costume jewelry. And and yet, Sosimos became fascinated with this process. And he and he thought, well, well, if they can make this, if they can make this uh, material that is brass, or they make this uh, this uh, comet metal that looks like gold and is gold plated and whatever, wow, we could couldn't we make real gold? Well, now um, in those days, uh, as as the authors point out. Um, they had a different concept of, of how metals evolved and how metals uh, were formed. Uh, the alchemists, uh, following, following to some degree, following Aristotle, they thought that um, that metals grew and matured in the earth, so that lead would eventually grow over. Well, I don't know what they had a time frame on it, but lead would could eventually become perfected and become gold. Right. So they thought that, well, now, if we speed up that maturation process, let's say we figure out, we, 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 we um, increase the fires and we, and we increase the purification and we, uh, we speed up the purification process, maybe we can, maybe we can go ahead and, and, and raise a, some baby lead into a mature gold much, much quicker, <laughs> supposedly. So that was the rationale behind it and behind what the, their process of, of um, purification and, and uh, continual purification. In fact, in fact, purification, as the authors point out, purification uh, was the, the byword of the alchemists. This was the this was the marching order of the alchemist, purify, 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 purify. And after you purify, keep purifying. And, and you purify it down. But we had various methods of purifying. And that's another thing that the authors have done. They've given us a way to understand these various terms that we run into in alchemy, like calcination, sublimation, uh, maturation, all these various, these various terms that, frankly, don't always mean the same thing. And uh, the the terms uh, sulfur, salt, and mercury don't mean don't mean common yellow rum egg sulfur and good old slippery slimy beady mercury and uh, and and you know uh, table salt. No, they don't mean that. And and so what we actually have when we we, we read. Uh, sulfur, uh, mercury, and, and salt. Well, uh, sulfur can mean any kind of any kind of sulfide, and uh, not just uh, not just sulfur sulfide. And it can and mercury can mean any can mean any molten or uh, liquid metal, any in, in liquid state. And uh, and salt can mean any 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 number of different salts. So these are uh, this makes it a lot easier to understand what the alchemists were were trying to do. And one of the things that they they uh, that the alchemists continually tried to do was to get the material purified. They thought that 
if they could just purify these materials, they could purify them down into another another state. And so, so much of their 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 processes were various kinds of purification. Distillation actually was was a kind of purification. They uh, so Zosimus um, was really in, in trying to produce real gold, or thought he could produce real gold, uh, following an extension, an alchemical extension, of the processes of the artisans who were actually making far gold. So they've explained that. And this kept going on, apparently, all through all through the, um, um, up into the Middle Ages, this idea of purifying metals, uh, base metals, and turning them into gold seemed to be one of the major goals of the alchemists. Now, one of the things that they, that they point out in here um, is that, that so much of this uh, that was done in Alexandria and much of Zosimus and other work was actually, it, it, it didn't go directly from Greek into Latin and into, and into Europe. It had to go first, it had to go into Arabic. And that didn't, of course, take place until the, the 600 A.D. when the Arabs uh, had their breakout, you know, and they swarmed all over uh, the eastern part of the civilized world. And, they, and the Arabs then became fascinated with alchemy. Now, the Arabs didn't do alchemy. There were very few Arabs that did it because, you know, like magic, the, the uh, Quran prohibited the doing of it, but they were fascinated by it, and they wanted to write books on it, and, they, and, and so... Uh, the Arabs were avid collectors of material, classical material on alchemy and magic and astrology and all the rest of that. And all of that was translated into Arabic. Well, that didn't really get into Europe. The Arab it didn't get into Europe until, uh, well, some of it did uh, uh, by the ninth century, but, but most of it didn't get back to Europe until, until after the Crusades. And so this is when alchemy really took off in Europe, uh, and, and but it, it was seen through an, uh, an Arab, an Arab translation of Greek, and then into Latin, and and so obviously in the, in translation a lot of this was kind of garbled or whatever. But but then the European alchemy gets gets really started in uh, you know in in the, the uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, after the Crusades. So, uh, what we we find out though in here is that that the alchemists, in these attempted transmutations that they kept kept doing, they kept purifying and and they kept separating, and they ended up, even though they were working on the wrong principle. The, the maturation of metals, the idea that we can take one metal and transform it into another, which you can't do, but you can do this by alloying, you know, and, and but they were working on the wrong the wrong principle, but even though they were working on the wrong principle, they ended up discovering a number of processes and a number of discoveries that, that really are very important and, and today and, and and just to give you an example the alchemists, the alchemists discovered 
how to how to actually purify uh, purify ore for mining. Now today, you know, we when we do, we do gold mining today, we use sulfuric acid, and we use uh, and, and we use uh, uh, different acids and, and 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 all to purify to purify gold to separate gold. Well, that was an alchemical discovery, so that certainly uh, aided uh, in in, uh, in metallurgy. And the alchemists uh, they discovered artist pigment. Artist pigment depended on, and that was discovered by the alchemists how to make how to make pigments for paint. And the alchemists, well, they discovered phosphorus. They discovered uh, they discovered how to uh, uh, how to literally how to the, the separation the purification of of metals purifying ore and uh, the, the the glazing process they they discovered uh, a number of, of of things that have come down to us that are very important one uh, incident that they mentioned that is uh, i think is very very um, uh, kind of amusing in a way, and it's a it's a great story about this young alchemist who um, uh, he, he was only about in his twenties, very early twenties, and he was apprenticed to a, uh, some uh, metallurgist artisan, and this was in in Europe and somewhere in Central Europe, and he um, he was very clever, and so he. Supplemented his meager little income as an apprentice by going out and putting on alchemical demonstrations. Yeah, sort of on a street corner. He's just sort of a street corner alchemist, and he get out there and he and he would and he would make gold, and he would and it was a little bit of a flimflam actually. He, he you know he was uh, he, he was almost a magic trick. Like he puts he puts base metal in his crucible and he heats it up, and then and then he does a little. You know, passes the cloth over it or something or other, and then and there's gold in there. Well, actually, he had a little gold to start with, <laughs> and, he, and he, it was it was a sleight of hand trick in a way. But he was doing this, but but he was a, a, he was he was serious about alchemy. He just needed to make a little extra money. Well, unfortunately, the king of his country heard about this, and they hauled him into court and told him he was going to make gold. And he had he had so long to do it, and they they put him in a, in a and they they locked him into his laboratory, and they told him he'd better make gold, and if he didn't make it, he was executed. And then a poor kid, uh, well, he had an expensive account, of course, and so the poor kid set to work, and he and he desperately trying to make gold after this, and and he kept trying and trying and trying, uh, and but he managed to. And he had a, a wealthy patron, uh, one of the king's uh, courtiers, who who uh, decided to help sponsor him and help and help him a little bit. And, and between the two of them, they didn't make gold, but they did make porcelain. And this was something that porcelain was very fantastically expensive. It was so expensive that it was even referred to as white gold. And the only place you could get it was China, and the, and the Chinese guarded the secret, you know, just uh, even Marco Polo couldn't get the secret, I mean, the Chinese. So porcelain was absolutely fantastic. 
it was fantastically expensive, and and uh, so here, here they, the, the the kid and his and his patron, they don't make, they don't make gold for the king, but they sure did make porcelain for the king, and the king said, oh, that's good. Now we'll build a porcelain factory, young man, and we'll make you put you in charge of it. So they 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 built a porcelain factory, national porcelain factory, and they and they put him in charge of it. And but he got tired of making porcelain, and he got to drinking too much, and he finally retired from the porcelain factory and went back to trying to make gold, even though the king didn't care about it anymore, because basically this is what the kid wanted to do. He wanted to make gold, and and uh, and yet yet he had he had discovered all on his well with his help of his of his well-educated wealthy patron that two other men discovered porcelain. And and uh, this is an example. One of the things that they point out that these guys they they, they weren't some of them weren't above pulling pulling some tricks to get to get support and to get funds, but really they 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 were more interested in making in in the process of finding and making this uh, than they were actually the money that they might have made if they made it. In fact. The point that they make in here is is that even if these guys were successful, even if they if they had had everything they wanted, they would still be doing it because they like to do it. They were they were seeking, they were looking into the unknown. They were they were working they were working to discover. In fact, you might say you might say that the difference between between a chemist and an alchemist. You might say, and I'm going to say this, not them, but I say that the difference between a chemist and an alchemist is imagination. And and if you understand that, you understand the difference between a chemist and an alchemist. Because the alchemist is always searching for something, something just out of reach. He's going. Now, now the, the authors along this line, they're going through, and they have these experiments that... Um, uh, after each chapter, they they get into an experiment that uh, that, that replicates the uh, the um, you know the, the the particular thing they're talking about in the chapter. Now, um, for instance, here we have a chapter we have a chapter here on uh, uh, see Michael and the fictitious friars, but. Um, one of the experiments here is a demonstration. Demonstration three: the frying, the firing, and the falsification of gold. Okay. Now, uh, this gives you a, just give you a little idea of this. The firing of gold. Halbert said that he had seen and handled alchemical gold, but after a few rounds of firings, it decomposed. And by firing, he meant cupellation or strong heating in a small crucible. And in the case of the false gold test, in the presence of lead, this process, metals that are not gold will combine with the lead and oxidize, or turn to a gray powder like a tin can thrown in a campfire. Gold will not do this. So when Albert's sample decomposed, he knew it wasn't gold. Now, 
This reminded me, when I read this, uh, I don't know how many of you have seen that old 1934 uh, MGM movie, The Mask of Fu Manchu. But in that film, um, Boris Karloff plays Fu Manchu, by the way. And in that film, the British Secret Service makes a phony copy of Genghis Khan's scimitar. Well, according to the story, Genghis Khan's scimitar has a solid gold hilt. So they make this phony copy, and they try to pass it off on Fu Manchu. And Fu Manchu, being an alchemist, of course, he takes the sword out to the center of his laboratory, sticks it in the floor, turns on a million-volt Tesla coil, hits the hilt of the sword with the bolt of lightning from the Tesla coil, and the whole hilt dissolves. And then he looks at this British agent, and he says, You fool, Fu Manchu! Yeah, well, this is what, actually, this is what they're describing. If it was real gold, that wouldn't have happened. And and so now we understand the alchemy of Fu Manchu. Uh, and, of course, um, this chapter on, 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 on this little section on falsifying gold here, let me read this. Uh, for this demonstration, you will need your cast iron skillet, tin shot. Now, that's, you know, that tin shot you can order... If you wonder where you're going to get tin, you can order it from the uh, on the Internet. And they have a whole section in here on, on how to order supplies in the book. Uh, you're going to need oven mitts, a clean screwdriver, and, and if you're not worried about, uh, about losing, and the porcelain crucible uh, suggested for purchase in our stones and ore section, place the crucible in the middle of the skillet and place the skillet on a burner. Add about a teaspoon, five millimeters of tin shot to the crucible, adjust the heat to 70% of maximum and wait, and wait. And it may take several minutes for the tin to melt. And you can gently shake the crucible every so often to see if the tin is melting and to merge the tin shot together if it is. And you need to use the oven mitts to handle the crucible porcelain and get and get. And, and in the crucible, the porcelain can get deceptively hot. The tin will melt very suddenly. The tin shot is fairly pure, which uh, which means all of it has essentially the same melting point. In fact, the melting point can be used as evidence of purity. If a sample melts gradually over a range of temperatures, it may be made up of more than one material and have more than one melting point. To make... The, our demonstrations work. We need pure materials, and so did the alchemists. They couldn't buy supplies off the Internet, so they had to purify their own. Much of the work of alchemy was purifying materials. Once the tin melts and you have agitated the crucible so that the tin in one puddle starts, starts and watching, start watching it carefully, and in a short time it should take on a golden sheen that is remarkably convincing. And when this happens, stir the tin with that clean screwdriver, and the gold color will disappear for a moment, but come back when you stop stirring. And once you have a nice golden sheen back again, remove the skillet from the burner and place it on the heat-resistant surface, such as another cool burner, but do not heat it for... For too long, as the gold color can be ruined with prolonged heating. 
Wait at least 15 minutes for the crucible and the contest to cool. Porcelain can also retain heat surprisingly well. And once the crucible is cooled, you can gently pry your gold nugget off the bottom. It may require some finesse, but it will eventually come free, and it is definitely worth it. Please see the plate on the photo insert. Now, yeah, okay, yeah, make, you can make out feeling whole gold right there, and they tell you how to do it. Um, now, they have also, they, they stopped kind of short on, um, on Paracelsus, uh, uh, they they mentioned the homunculus and they and they they give us a little more information on how to make it than I've gotten in other stories. But they they didn't want to go ahead and nurture this thing in the horse's stomach, so they they stopped short on it. So what they what the, what they do have is some very interesting experiments on how to how to grow some strange things uh, from metals in bottles like uh, strange trees and strange uh, plant-like structures and all, and, uh, and some of these things that, that probably would have been amazing back in, in, in those days. Now, um, um, let me see here. One of the... Uh, one of the um, Uh, oh, the golden fleece, and this is another one. Um, this golden fleece thing, you'll find this all through Michael Mayer, and of course the golden fleece in in uh, um, in the you know the Argosy uh, that preceded the Odyssey and whatever. Uh, the golden fleece, the fleece was actually fleece skins were actually used to pick up golden streams. This was a form of gold panning. You take the fleece, you put it down in the in the water, and, and if gold particles are, you know, are um, are in the water and coming over over the rocks and all that, the fleece will pick them up. And uh, so this was this was one of the one of the methods of gold mining. You know, I think that one of the things we should realize that the alchemists the alchemists often said in order to make gold, you must have gold. And uh, they, 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 that could be either to make fake gold or rather in their attempts to make real gold. But one thing that they did accomplish was that they, that they really added to the mining industry um, a lot of techniques that the mining industry ended up using. And, of course, they also learned things. They learned things from the mining industry, too. So this was a, a, a sort of a symbiotic process. Now, um, they also, you know, the um, the uh, business of Venice with, with the glassware, uh, one of the things that, that, that uh, these people point out here in this book is the colors, the various colors that the alchemists could, could uh, accomplish. And they've got a section in here where you can make up uh, even while using cabbage juice and other other things, you can make up all kinds of different colors and all kinds of different dyes. And the alchemists were one of the things besides paint pigment that they produced, is they produced dyes uh, for the for the, uh, the for the garment industry, and uh, then they uh, and perfume. The whole perfume industry is essentially began with alchemy. 
the the this this was this was an outgrowth of alchemy, and so consequently uh, there were so many things that the the alchemists contributed that you really can't say that you can't you can't draw a line between chemistry and alchemy until until oh, almost up until uh, say the middle of the 1700s you just start drawing a line and say okay on one side we have chemistry and on the other side we have alchemy and and uh, because all the way up to that time uh, the two were inseparable except that you have to realize that there were professional uh, there were professional artisans chemists metallurgists and and they didn't call themselves chemists in those days, but but out the the alchemists were separate from them, but but they used so many similar techniques, and there was so much interchange between them. Um, and in fact, as they pointed out in here, that a lot of these alchemists were actually uh, professional artisans during the day. In other words, they were doing metal work during the day. They were doing actual or mining work or these or various. Uh, uh, in the case of Venice, of course, it was the glass blowers. I mean, and these guys were alchemists at night. This was their hobby. They 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 went home and they and 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 they practiced practiced alchemy. And so, one and now we get into a kind of a a a sort of a revolution in alchemy, which we're still um, feeling the impact of today. And that's the the advent of Paracelsus. During the um, during what you might call the the high Renaissance, at the end of the high Renaissance, you have the advent of Paracelsus, and Paracelsus was a very unique alchemist, and he disagreed. He disagreed with with uh, the classic physician Galen, and Galen had uh, been. Uh, had been ever since classical times, Galen had been uh, the doctor's um, bedside companion, so to speak. And whatever Galen said, that's what you did. And Galen's theory on disease was that we had four primary uh, fluids in the body, and there was black bile, and there was phlegm, and there was, um, and there was. Uh, uh, a couple of other things, uh, the, the sanguine stuff. That the, these four four humors, what he called the humors, and that if these humors got out of balance, then you had disease. This was Galen's theory. So from this we get a lot of bleeding and leeches and and sweat sweating. Uh, uh, sweating and 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 all sorts of very uncomfortable treatments that that followed Galen's idea that all we have to do is balance the humors and we can cure anything. Well, uh, actually, I think people recovered from Galen from Galen's therapy. They recovered because they had to. They couldn't stand the therapy. <laughs> they had no choice. They better recover from it. And so Paracelsus came along, and Paracelsus was he just rejected Galen. And he said, "No, come on, that's just not." It. So he came up with a with a series of medicines, alchemical medicines. A lot of them were metallurgic. Now, the other, on the other hand, there was a lot of herbal. The common, uh, the the cunning men, and the what we 
what we uh, ended up calling witches. They had they had all kinds of herbal remedies, and a lot of them were really good. And the herbal remedies were better than than Galen's ideas, and and the herbal remedies were better than what Paracelsus was coming up with. But Paracelsus came up with these alchemical uh, remedies that he keyed to astrology and all, and his therapy um, was just give them a little bitty dose of this thing, and and then uh, and then use the placebo effect, and then just talk them. Encourage them into into curing, and the less you the less you give them, and the, and the less you treat them, the better off they'll be because nature will. And and well, of course, when he's up against Galen, uh, his ideas worked, and and they worked better than Galen. So Paracelsus became quite popular, even though he himself was a was a, a very very eccentric individual and. <laughs> Died in poverty, supposedly drunk on a tavern floor or whatever. But, but regardless of that, Paracelsus became very famous, and his remedies uh, became tremendously popular. But unfortunately, people forgot what Paracelsus had said. He had said that that the only thing that makes a poison a poison is the measure. The measure. This was a very important thing that Paracelsus said, because some poisons in small amounts are actually therapeutic, and in larger amounts they become toxic, and in very large amounts they become deadly. So Paracelsus used used toxic substances in very very small amounts, but somehow or other, these after he died, these very popular. Uh, these these popularizing alchemical uh, medicine makers forgot that, and so they ended up actually poisoning people was more than Paracelsus ever would. But the interesting thing about it, and the herbal cures, Galen, of course, was, was forgotten, but the herbal cures were forgotten too. And so we had a situation here where now, they, now our authors don't say this, they don't say this. They're they're tactful enough not to say this. But doggone it, you can't help but think that the misuse of Paracelsus's chemicals just pretty much describes big pharma today, doesn't it? We have herbal cures are still in the back alley, and they're better than these than all this stuff that big pharma comes up with. And big pharma is, is like they're like they're like the the later day Paracelsians, you know. Uh, they they've forgotten that that uh, that toxic chemicals are are you only want to use them in very small amounts and very carefully. And so we have we have more people today. We have more people being hurt by this kind of this kind of chemical medicines than we have being helped by it. And uh, so this is this is this, but this but this goes back to alchemy, and maybe in, in the herbal. Now this one of the things, of course, about this book that these these folks are chemists, and so they are looking at, at alchemy from the you know the chemical mineral uh, uh, perspective, and so consequently uh, they're. There is another area called plant alchemy. They get into that a little bit. They've got a, 
uh, 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 experiment back here with cabbage juice to make different colors, to make different different colored uh, displays. But um, the the basic pr uh, premise here is chemistry, and and as such, I think that this this book just really fills a, a terrific need. It it it, it makes chemical and mineral alchemy accessible again to those of us who have been, you know, afraid of it and have wanted to have wanted to get into it. Uh and because they emphasize safety over and over and over again. Just to give you an example. They they'll tell you, you know, wear your safety glasses always. Whenever you're cooking anything alchemically, always have the safety glasses on. Always have that fire extinguisher ready. Always have the exhaust fan running. And don't look into a pot or an open or an open vessel where you have a reaction going on. Don't look into it because number one, you're liable to get the fumes. Number two, if it pops it's gonna get in, it's gonna burn you. So what you do is you use a mirror. If you wanna see what the reaction in the pot is, look at it in a mirror. Don't stick your head in it. Well, of course, back when I was nine years old, uh, we, we didn't know that. Nobody told us that. So, <laughs> And I, I was very glad to read that. And 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 then yeah, over and over again, they are very and they're and, and the disposal of, of toxic of toxic chemicals. They tell you how to do that, and and so you're not going to ruin your your pipes or or pollute the neighborhood or anything like that. So they're very careful. And, and uh, now on the homonuclus, as I said, they 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 said, well, we're not going to actually do the uh, the homonuclus primarily because we didn't want to get a horse's stomach. And they said maybe that we ought to believe that. And okay, we'll believe that. But if you recall, the homonucleus um, experiment with Paracelsus, uh, uh, and Paracelsus didn't very do very well with women, so probably that's the reason why he came up with this. Oh, I don't know. They were homonucleus experiments before Paracelsus. But uh, uh, you know, you, you think male semen. And you and you put it uh, and and you and you put it in a in, in some kind of a well horse's stomach, and and then you and you feed it on human blood, and then you put it in a jar, and then you bury it under horse manure for 45 days, and, and you take it out and you feed it more, and whatever. But they did have, but they do have an experiment similar to that where you actually grow a a sort of a plant-looking thing. Inside inside a jar, and it's fascinating. And they got a picture of it in here. Um, the yeah, it says, let's see. The ghostly golden garden that fascinated the alchemist Glenn Glauber and his contemporaries. Orange tendrils of our blood red mass grew in in the rear garden. And in the foreground, our green mass tree displayed the black trunk and green boughs and the very top layer of rusty iron oxid oxidizes that Gabber would have seen as the golden foliage. This thing really looks fantastic. And I'm looking at it here in the, in the, in the plate. Um, so, uh, as I say, and, and their gold nugget here that they produced is, oh, oh, boy, that really looks good. And uh, they 
they have, as I said, produced a book here that, frankly, I'm going to say we're going to have to we're going to use this uh, we're going to replace um, um, uh, old uh, Rydell's uh, Alchemist Sand, but we're going to replace it with this one for our beginning alchemy uh, uh, course because this this really this really gets you into it in a very nice, uh, safe, and yet definitely, definitely uh, has the has the um, the professional the professional touch that you know that what you're doing is the way it's done. By the way, just a little interesting thing here. I was looking through the book. Um, a little uh, kind of a gruesome thing. We all like gruesome things. This is a description from a, of a a Ponchi Magogan, whatever. If you ever wondered what a Ponchi Magogan is, this is a Ponchi Magogan. A Ponchi Magogan contains 12 ingredients. Mumia is made from the corpse of a red-headed man, 24 years old, who has suffered a violent death cut into bits, sprinkled with myrrh and aloes, soaked in alcohol, dried and extracted with alcohol, segundum artem. The dry part is extracted with, with olive oil for a, mouth, for a month, and the extract mixed with a tincture to form ethereac. The xenoxthan of Paracelsus is stamped into the coccyx by a stamp engraved with characters and the substances made from dried toads, arsenic, pearls, gems, musk, etc. And they say we didn't try reproducing that one. Well, I wouldn't try either, but it's fun to read. The uh, so uh, one of the things too that they that they do is they do have a chapter on charlatans and chicanery and alchemy and all the various. Oh, not all of them, but 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 the various tricks and the sleight of hand tricks and the and the uh, the fake transmutations and the various uh, tricks that the, uh, the that some of the alchemists did. And they've got a chapter on John D. and Kelly, and they're emphasizing primarily Kelly's uh, alchemical uh, shenanigans. But um, another thing too that I find interesting is uh, that here they're talking about. Equally entertaining are the real-life Renaissance miscreants, such as the Italian alchemical deceiver Mamugna, who traveled with two black dogs he called his familiars. He ended up executed along with the innocent dogs. Now, he may have called himself Mamugna. He may have called himself that. And actually, his name was Braggadocio. Now, I'm not talking about the book now. That's what they say in the book. But we have to know his name was Braggadocio. And uh, we deal with him in our fifth degree, uh, which is our alchemical degree. And um, he was apprenticed to the uh, redoubtable Horaminus, the, uh, the master alchemist uh, in Venice, who also was involved in the secret uh, Venice Republic glass factory, and uh, so that's the background on that. But but uh, Braggadocio uh, 
and he 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 was trying to he he said he had to had discovered the philosopher's stone from uh, uh, from Hieronymus, and he he tried to get um, wealthy women uh, overage wealthy women pregnant with this philosopher's stone. I wonder what his philosopher's stone was. You wonder about that. But anyway, uh, but that was Mamunda. <laughs> and and uh, it shows in, in, in here they even have a recipe, an alchemical recipe for making pearls. Yeah, very convincing, very convincing synthetic pearls that you can make alchemically. I bet the I bet they've got the alchemist in Uh And and. Uh, then they 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 have um, they have a lot of they, um, on how to they even have invisible ink that you can that you can make of course and um, another one that I thought was fascinating and this relates to to uh, things that we that we uh, know about from from Lovecraft and also from McGregor Mathers. Um, here, this is a very interesting little section here. Now, the process, the recreation of a plant from its ashes, has a name. Palynogenesis. Palindrome is a word that reads the same, spelled forwards and backwards. And palynogenesis means the growing of growing a plant or animal from its ashes, which is a sort of backward-forward thing to do. Now, um, this is related to something that Mathers had translated in that French grimoire of Armadale about where, about where it says you can raise... Uh, you can raise any um, ancient sage from the, from the salts from the salts of his tomb, and I've always kind of wondered where you know because the group Grimoire of Armadale didn't really didn't appear uh, in, in public in, until the, the 1970s, uh, and where Lovecraft got from for his uh, his chase of Charles Dexter Ward and bringing the salts of these. Uh, bringing the shades of these ancient philosophers up from their ashes. Maybe he got this from this uh, this Genesis um, uh, process of bringing uh, plants from the salts, possibly. Um, and it says here, okay, here's the experiment. Wearing work gloves, hold your bottle of water and ashes over the heat. Keep the contact point in the flame with the bottle as constant as possible. Eventually, the localized heating should set up a conduction current that lifts the lighter ash high while stirring the heavier pieces below. If one suspends one's belief, and perhaps has a shot of princesses, it is possible to imagine what the alchemist may have imagined, the ghostly form of a reincarnated plant wonderfully returned to life. Yeah, so uh, this this book reminds me of some of the fantastic experiments that Nensel talked about during that uh, during that uh, symposium we had years ago, 
because he, he mentioned some experiments like this, and we all sat there and thought, oh, gee, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if that's possible. Well, it looks like this is a book that shows you how to produce things like this and how to, uh, and, and how to um, replicate some of the effects. See, one of the things, the alchemists really believed that color, the changing of colors, was an important key to their process. You know, the peacock's tail was supposed to be, uh, when you saw all the colors of the peacock's tail, you knew you were getting close to the, to the final transmutation and all that. Uh, and so the, the, the production of these beautiful the color displays was very, very much a part of the art. And this is, this, as, the, as the authors describe in here, this excited the alchemists. They thought, boy, they thought when they got one of these marvelous colored displays, we're getting close, we're getting close, we're getting closer. And that, of course, uh, was one of the secrets of Venetian glass was uh, that the alchemists were able to produce down there in that secret private island down in Venice where they were doing this. Those glass blowers were, uh, they were they, 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 some of them were alchemists, and they produced this magnificent colored glass. Oh, yeah. So these are the things that the alchemists did, and these are the things you can do. And, and frankly, to tell you the truth, I'm inspired by this this book. I want to, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, about uh, well, first I think, though, I think maybe I better get a book on high school chemistry and kind of go through it a little bit, though. I, I think maybe that might not be a bad idea. And yet, on the other hand, um, with a book like this, I would feel safe in doing these, even though I, even though I, I don't remember my high school chemistry very well. But I, I, I'd feel because they have the way they laid this out and all the safety precautions they take, I wouldn't feel. Uh, I wouldn't feel uh, endangered. I'd have, have a lot more confidence than I would trying to work from the kind of tech, from the kind of handbooks we uh, this sort we've had before. So um, let's. Uh, those of you who are really interested in and seriously interested in alchemy, and seriously interested in actually doing it, this is a book you really, really gonna have to have. Uh, and I don't think it will be a while before we see anything better than this. Uh, although I'm sure that that somebody will come out with a book, Alchemy for Dummies. Uh, somebody's going to do that, but but if they do, they're going to they're going to owe a lot to this book because uh, this this is really this this is this is the book that you got to have if you're actually going to do it. Okay, that's all for tonight, and uh, next week we'll be back on on station with another um, with another fascinating glimpse into the hermetic arts. And, and until then, good magic.